February 28, 1997, North Hollywood, California. A sunny morning. The temperature is about the same as usual during February. Average high was nearly 70 degrees. Traffic is flowing. Businesses are just opening. The dentist office across the street is just now seeing patients. And dispatcher Tanya Ballard, who was seven months pregnant, had just started her shift earlier in the morning. And Tanya, at this point, was a very seasoned dispatcher, having worked during events such as the North Ridge earthquake, a double officer-involved shooting, the O.J. Simpson arrest in 94, and the trial to follow, the riots after the Rodney King verdict, and on and on. Radio traffic was routine. Nothing out of the ordinary. Tony's day was about to suddenly change into what she would later describe to be a terrifying day. While normal police and dispatch work was happening, two very heavily armed gunmen were parked across the street from the branch of the Bank of America, located in the 6600 block of Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Their plan was simple. Get out with as much cash as possible. They had pulled their car into one of the parking spots close to the front entrance of the bank, next to the main parking lot. They made ready, including ski masks and rifles, exited the vehicle, and calmly entered the bank. They had planned on this being an easy, in-and-out type job. What they didn't plan on was a patrol unit driving by as they were walking in. It was pretty obvious to the officers in that patrol unit that this was a robbery about to happen. A 211 is LAPD's code for a robbery. At this point, they had no idea what exactly was happening. This was a bank robbery, sure, but they were also hearing multiple gunshots inside the bank. Were they inside shooting the people in the bank? Was there a security guard inside exchanging fire with them? Were they just shooting to intimidate everybody inside the bank? The officers that saw the suspects enter the bank, they weren't sure. The only thing they did know for sure was that they needed more officers, and they needed a lot of them, and quick. Responding, 
was right. They had no idea the police were right outside waiting on them. At this point, other units were converging on the bank from all over the city. As you could hear, code three response, which is emergency, get there as fast as they can. Officers are getting more and more set up on the outside of the bank surrounding it. One lucky person managed to get out of the bank. And we're hearing on the radio now that there are two to three males wearing ski masks and were armed with AK-47s. Knowledge that this weapon's being used inside is very important in what will come later on in the episode. So keep that in mind. I'll go over the details when it becomes obviously necessary pertaining to that specific gun. The amount of suspects is obviously important. Two to three is better than nothing. And this was reported by a citizen who saw them walking in the bank. The officers that were driving by as the suspects were entering, they didn't get a great look at how many there were. They were driving. If you as a witness, as a citizen, are in this situation, 
where you see this happening, think really, really hard about how many people you saw. Two is one thing. Three is another. If you have the report of two or three inside the bank and two walk out, there may still be one in the bank. So if you saw exactly one or exactly two walk in and the police see exactly one or exactly two walk out, that makes it much easier when trying to determine how many suspects there are. And if, when they get in custody, if they have them all in custody. Okay, I'll let's get to attack frequency. I do have a suspect description. Our units at the Tolan and Pardo Canyon north of Kittredge. Tech five. Switch to tech five for Tolan and progress. Four shots are being fired from inside the bank. 40, more shots are being fired from the suspects at Laurel Canyon north of Kittredge at the Bank of America. Uh, 15 out 10, we've got automatic gunfire coming from somewhere from the bank location. Also, uh, we need somebody to block traffic um, at Victory. The traffic at Kittredge is too close to this bank. Block it at Victory. They're now asking for the air unit, the police helicopter. This will help in multiple ways. It'll help determine if there are any holes in the perimeter they've got set up as well as an overhead view of the suspects. One the officers are not able to see. They also mentioned automatic gunfire, machine guns. This is a huge, huge thing. This ups the entire game incredibly. The suspects have machine guns. As in you pull the trigger one time and until you let go of the trigger, bullets will continue to spray out of the gun. Police officers do not carry machine guns like this. LAPD then didn't even have anything close to this. They also requested an ambulance respond for a standby. They had the automatic fire inside the bank. No telling what is going to happen to the people inside the bank or the suspects when they exit or anybody else for that matter. In a case like this, any seconds they can shave off of getting someone to the hospital may be the difference in a life and death situation. Also on this, you can hear multiple units keen up on the radios at the same time. This is how our old radio system that I work at used to be. And a lot of 911 systems across the U.S. are still like this. This is why multitasking is a huge part of being a dispatcher. You have to be able to listen to and process in your brain multiple things at a time, sometimes while talking and typing, all at the same time. I know I do not advise that suspects are last, two male Hispanic suspects are last seen westbound through the area. Fifteen out ten, Roger on SWAT. Fifteen out ninety, advise L ten that SWAT has been notified, and we also need a telephone number, cell phone number from him. Fifteen out ten, SWAT has been notified. Fire. 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 Fire.
Okay, that's fine. 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 Hang on, SWAT unit come in. 
said earlier, multitasking was key in this dispatch effort. This dispatcher was getting info from other dispatchers and relaying it to the officers out there on the scene. It's not something easy to do. And she was doing it incredibly well. Now we heard the officers on the scene start saying to pick up some weapons at B&B. This was a gun shop nearby. They needed heavier weaponry. And they needed it soon. They kept saying that they had nothing that could take these guys down, and for the most part, they were right. Additionally to the pistols the officers were carrying, a few of the other officers had shotguns. These were more than likely filled with buckshot. This is a shell that contains multiple bullet-sized pellets. In this case, more than likely, they're using double-lot buckshot. Up close with no body armor, this is a devastating round. The pellets are roughly the same diameter as a 9mm bullet, pretty close but in one pull of the trigger you get eight to twelve of these pellets going out of the end of the shotgun at the same time but there was the huge problem i was talking about heavy body armor the suspects were not going down the units that were remarking do not approach they have automatic weapons we can't take them down the reason why they couldn't take them down was not because of the automatic weapons they had it was because of the body armor had the suspects not been wearing the body armor they would have been down well before all this. Officers' rounds were connecting, and without the body armor, they would have put these guys down. But the bullets were essentially bouncing off. So the bit about going to the gun store for more weapons, they needed something that could penetrate the body armor. They were going to go there and get some rifles themselves, because at this time, LAPD did not carry the rifles. At least the patrol officers did not. You also heard there at the end of that little bit an officer saying shoot for the head. And that was right. If they could have hit him in the head, that would have ended it right there. But the officers were shooting pistols at a minimum distance of around 200 feet. To give you an idea of why this is important, the majority of encounters, police or civilians, involving shooting at a suspect 
happens within seven yards or 21 feet. If you go to an indoor range, you may have a 15-yard shot available to practice on. So about twice the length of the normal encounter. These officers were shooting it 200 feet away. The fact that they were making shots on target was amazing at that distance anyway, but asking them to shoot at an even smaller target than center mass, the head, that was damn near impossible. Is the other suspect still in the vehicle? Fine. Does anyone have a clear shot of the suspect? 
machinery riding. Oh, he's behind me. He needs to be picked up. He's, he's directly adjacent to this black vehicle parked in the uh, number two lane. Black vehicle, black vehicle number two lane for the officer down at Arch where we preach across. Still a lot going on here. An insane amount of gunfire was going on for a long time. Still going on. And worse than anything, really, the suspects are now mobile. They escaped the perimeter that was set up. So instead of having these suspects wrangled in one area, now they're on the move. This poses a number of problems. But let's keep listening. Hello, Canyon, just, just north of Oxnard. The suspect is out of the vehicle at Limp shooting at civilians. It's north, north or south of 6600 block of Laurel Canyon, 9089 is down. Need to know if the suspect's approach northbound on Laurel Canyon. Well, can you get someone into Archwood? North of Archwood on Laurel Canyon, there's an officer down by a black vehicle, and the suspects are en route to that location. Traffic. 
said in before in a couple other episodes that was a cluster but finally two suspects in custody the first suspect was in custody but he wasn't going anywhere there was some speculation as to what happened to his rifle but it likely jammed up or he just ran out of ammo that was actually on him he had to drop that and switch to a handgun while firing that an officer shot him in the hand in the actual hand that was holding the gun that round connected along with some other rounds too. But that one to the hand ruined his ability to keep in the fight. The suspect picked up his gun, put it to his head, and pulled the trigger. About the same time an officer's round was connecting with his head as well. When he was on the ground, more rounds connected with him. He was shot a total of 11 times. The second suspect, as you heard, tried to change vehicles, probably because the first vehicle had taken so much fire that it was either nearly or at that point fully inoperable. As luck would have it, though, the truck he was trying to get into was also inoperable. 
I've seen conflicting stories as to why that was. One said that the owner of the vehicle took his keys with him as he was running away. Another one said that it was an older truck that had a fuel cutoff switch and that the suspect didn't know how to use the truck. Either way, at this point, SWAT showed up rapidly to the scene. There was a last gunfight that was going through one of the police vehicles at very close quarters. And when I say going through the police vehicle, they were shooting back and forth through the car. A couple of officers had the good idea to shoot the suspect in the feet and the legs. This worked. After being shot a couple of times underneath the vehicle, the suspect fell to the ground. For a few more shots, the suspect continued to fire, but then ended up dropping his weapon and throwing his hands up. When they got him in custody, even after all this, he still didn't stop running his mouth. He was still yelling at the officers. He was still alive, but he was hit a total of 29 times. Because of the uncertainty of the other suspects in the area, if there was any, or inside the bank, the medics weren't cleared to enter for nearly an hour after that, so the officers could properly clear the area, making sure there were, in fact, no other suspects and no further danger in the area. Because of that, the second suspect bled out and died. Funnily enough, if you want to say it that way, the family of the second suspect tried to sue the city because of the slow response time of the ambulance, saying it was the police's fault that their son died. This is laughable. He died for something that he started and he was responsible for. He and he alone. In total, there were nearly 2,000 rounds fired in this incident, over 1,100 by the suspects and over 650 by the officers. These are both estimates, and they may be far from accurate. As you could hear from the audio, this was one of the longest gunfights in police history. The most amazing part of this whole incident, other than the suspects, there were no deaths. Twelve officers were injured one way or another, either from being shot or from debris of things around them that were being shot, and eight civilians were also injured. The suspects, Larry Phillips Jr. and M.L. Matasarinu, had a lengthy, both of them, had lengthy run-ins with breaking the law and in just various numerous ways. On the low end, fraud and forgery, and on the upper end, two other bank robberies and two heists on armored cars, all with the same M.O. Going heavy, shooting, and get out with whatever money they can handle. One of the armored car heists ended up with one guard dead and the other one seriously wounded. They were stopped earlier on in 1993 in the town of Glendale for speeding of all things. Inside their vehicle, after it was searched, they found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 2,800 rounds of ammo, smoke bombs, improvised explosive devices, radio scanners, body armor vests, and three different license plates. They were charged in that incident with conspiracy to commit robbery and served 100 days in jail and then had three years of probation afterwards. This obviously didn't deter them from committing all the other crimes along with this one we just listened to. Turning back to the core of this show, focusing on dispatchers, This dispatcher on the call did a fantastic job start to finish. Any new or even seasoned dispatcher should really pay attention to how she did all this. During a 30-plus minute firefight, in addition to the time the suspects were inside the bank, she kept her cool, not getting excited a single time during the whole chaos of the situation. This is the correct way to do it. Keep your cool so the officers on the scene can easily understand what's being said. She is relaying the info to the officers on the scene that may be screaming. She can hear the info much better than the officers and can relay it with a lot more clarity. This is some of the best dispatching I have ever heard. If you like this episode or any other episodes, please give the show a good old five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Think about heading over to patreon.com and signing up to be a contributor to the show patreon.com slash musiccity911 or hit up the show's website www.musiccity911.com for a one-time donation. 
Stay tuned on the website for upcoming merchandise related to the show and follow the show on various social media for any updated information on the show. Facebook, at Music City 911 Pod, and also the Music City 911 Podcast Discussion Group, and on Twitter and Instagram, at Music City 911. For Music City 911, this is Brandon Hall. Y'all have a good one.